Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our Protect Our Province COVID-19 briefing for October 12, 2021. We are grateful to live and work in Alberta, a province on the traditional and ancestral territory of 48 different First Nations and the unceded homeland of the Métis Nation. Today's conversation is being shared in ASL. To ensure access to completely accurate information, closed captioning will be uploaded after the live stream is complete. This conversation for the public is being shared live on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. The Protect Our Province COVID-19 briefing is a regular panel of doctors and experts. We will endeavor to bring timely, accurate updates on the COVID-19 crisis in Alberta and take questions from the media. The views of our panelists are their own and do not represent any institutions they may be affiliated with. We have collectively gathered here as concerned Albertans attempting to ensure that everyone in the province has access to as much information concerning COVID-19 in Alberta as possible. As always, we will start things off with a brief update on the COVID-19 situation in Alberta. Before I invite Dr. Vipond on screen to share his analysis of the long weekend numbers, I would like to acknowledge that the focus of today's panel is mental health. As the conversation is unfolding live with questions from folks at home, I cannot provide any specific trigger warnings or predict where our discussion will go. So before we begin, I want to thank you all for tuning in today. And I want to invite anyone who needs to, at any point, to push pause, restart it later, revisit the broadcast once it's complete for information that resonates with your experience, or don't. It's okay to step away from your computer or television. Shut it off, call a friend, seek one-on-one professional support. Whatever you choose, please do what you need. I want to really recognize that this conversation is a beginning and it is a conversation that will be perfectly imperfect. If there were any easy answers to the effect of COVID-19 and the current state of the world, and how it was affecting each of us, this briefing could be an email or text. But experiences, processing, and emotions, the messy complexities of the human experience, cannot be summed up neatly in 270 characters. And that's okay. I personally need to believe that by honestly initiating dialogue and open conversations and beginning them again, and again, and again. We will start to lay the foundation that will support us individually and collectively as we find a way through the ongoing psychological impacts of COVID-19. But I know we will not lay the entirety of that foundation today or build a lasting robust structure in the next 45 minutes. But I also know that we can start. At the end of the broadcast and throughout, we will provide some information on accessing mental health supports. We will also be sharing more information via our social media accounts. Please be gentle and aware of yourself over the next 45 minutes to an hour. Remember to breathe and join in on the conversation in whatever capacity works for you at this moment in time. Perfectly imperfect. I would now like to turn things over to Dr. Vipond for his analysis of COVID-19 in Alberta. Dr. Vipond. Thanks again for having me on, Michelle. Um, 
We uh, we have a really important topic today, and I don't really want to spend too much time focusing on the numbers. I'm going to try and be quick so that we can really focus on what's important. So as you can see, all the, the indices are down as far as cases per day. All four days we have drops. And next slide, please. This is probably best represented in the seven-day average. That red line you see on Robson uh, Fletcher's um, graph it is going down. It's going down pretty fast. Uh, um, and in fact, we have a 27% drop week over week um, uh, to yesterday. And that is exactly what we want to see. We want to see that going down and uh, at no time plateauing. There are a couple of uh, strange numbers, those uh, three black dots near the bottom. Uh, two of them are the holiday Sunday and the holiday Monday. And we just know that we test a lot less on those days. Um, so we just need to watch things closely, see how that will impact the numbers as the week rolls out. I hope that we continue in this direction because exponential decline is a beautiful sight to see. Next slide, please. We also confirming that this is a real uh, set of data. We have dropping uh, percent positivity numbers. Now uh, you can see that that blue line, which is the seven day average, also continues to drop all four days. So that's uh, that's really good to see. Next slide, please. Okay, so here's where the plateauing is really happening. As anybody who's been watching these knows, these numbers, especially the inpatient numbers, change um, dramatically over time. So the orange line, um, the last day we can really count on, I'm afraid, is, is the Thursday number. Um, Thursday number being 863. Um, and... Really, the peak was 873, so we're only 10 people down from the peak. The rest of the weekend, the numbers are dropping, but they always change, especially on a weekend. So uh, I'm not even going to bother mentioning them. Just, just watch my Twitter feed to see how those evolve over time. Uh, next slide, please. ICU is gradually declining. We're now at 242 as of yesterday. Um, it was 252 on Friday. And uh, the peak was 268. So we're about 10% down from the peak, uh, which was about two and a half weeks ago. So going the right direction, but boy, is it ever slow. That's, that's what happens when you have two to three week um, ICU admission uh, stays. Next slide, please. And just to look over the entirety of the pandemic, you can see uh, that our numbers as far as hospitalizations are much higher, remain much higher, even today, even with the slight drops that we've seen, uh, much higher than any other wave. Next slide, please. Um, uh, pediatric hospitalizations, we have uh, three new hospitalizations in the 10 to 19 years. And oh my God, uh, we have our first true pediatric death. We had one 19-year-old pass away, and now we have a 14-year-old who passed away. Um, in the presser, I heard the caveat that there were comorbidities. Um, in my mind, there are no comorbidities um, that matter in this instance. A 14-year-old is a 14-year-old. And for the record, if I were to pass away tomorrow, I would be listed as a 52-year-old with comorbidities. And so I've never felt that that caveat uh, has May it comforted me in, in any way, shape, or form. So a moment for the 14-year-old who died this weekend. Next slide, please. These are the listing of the 33 deaths. Um, uh, you can see that the, the 10 to 19 listed there. Um, there's also a 30 to 39-year-old female who's in that list as well. And I, I looked at this 
quickly, I didn't think I saw, saw anybody under the age of 50 other than those two. Um, but uh, every death is a, a life that uh, would have been continuing to live had they lived in a, a, a province like Nova Scotia or a country like New Zealand. Next slide, please. This is the demographics of the ages. Everybody's dropping, but still look at how much higher those five to 11, those unable to be vaccinated, uh, school attending kids. Um, uh, look how high that, that number is. And um, it's, it's still way too high. Next slide, please. And the geographically, we have good drops everywhere, um, but noting again that the rural areas much, much higher than the uh, than the uh, the uh, urban areas are at this point, I believe that's my last slide. Um, yeah, I think we should just go right into the slide uh, to the uh, presentation today because I do think it's uh, so important. So thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Vipont. I would now like to bring in all three of our panelists briefly to introduce themselves in case any of you at home have any specific questions that you would like to throw into whatever chat stream you are watching on. Um, after brief introductions, I am going to um, ask Dr. Bajenko to share some information with us around anxiety and tiny humans, and then we will go into our larger panel discussion. So maybe starting with you, Dr. Bajenko. Thanks, Michelle. You made me cry at the beginning. It's so emotional. Um, disclaimer to everyone, I'm a bit of a crybaby, but uh, I'm Dr. Caroline Bazenko. I work mostly with uh, children, teens, and families doing assessment and intervention, mostly around anxiety, which I've definitely seen a lot of. That's me. So I'm uh, Dr. Rena LaFrance. I am a pediatric psychiatrist at the Stollery Children's Hospital. I'm also at the Misericordia, I lead a program there for pediatric obesity. Uh, and I also have a private practice for women uh, for psychotherapy. And that's sort of my main gigs right now. Hi everyone, my name is Jesse Roos and uh, I am the executive director of Cultivate, which is a private mental health clinic uh, physically located in Calgary and in Victoria, British Columbia. Uh, we offer um, counseling and assessment services both online and in person through both provinces. And we are really, really passionate about reducing the barriers to access of mental health services. We do this by offering all of our services on a pay what you can basis, um, as well as uh, in the format that uh, clients are most comfortable with or most need, whether that is in home, online, at our office, in their workplace, um, various locations like that. Thank you all very much for giving of your time today to help us begin some conversations that I know are front of mind for so many Albertans, but come with a huge amount of stigma and barriers in terms of how to open up those conversations. So I am just so thankful that all of you are here. Dr. Bajenko, we have your slides. So as you need them, just say next slide and we will make that happen for you. And thank you so much for taking the time to prepare this presentation. Thank you. Yes. Um, so yeah, if you can put them up. 
And I know just as they're going up here, I really wanted to focus on uh, child and teen mental health because they are the most vulnerable because they do have different developmental needs, whether it's physically, socially, emotionally, cognitively, it's very different than adults and they can't process traumatic events. You can go to the next slide. Uh, not the same way as adults do. They're really susceptible to stress and fear and anxiety and all of that's worsened when they don't have predictable sort of routines and expectations. Those are so critical for self-discipline and impulse control. And we've seen a lot of difficulties around that aspect of things with kiddos. At the end of the day, you know, everything that's happened with COVID has had prof profound effects whether it's on their social, emotional sort of well-being and their overall quality of life. It's been tremendous. And there's so many different factors why. I'm not gonna go through each of those, but it's you know the lack of structure, lack of stimulation, lack of social supports and, and the social interactions. You can go on to the next slide. I did just want to say a quick point about we know motor activities, i.e. sports and social interactions are critical um, for kiddos development and it's actually connected to their cognitive abilities as well and their health outcomes. And we know when we look at their capacity to learn and we just think about their intelligence. 10 extra days of school raises scores on intelligence tests. So you think that's just 10 days of school make a huge difference in their learning capacity, their ability to reason and, and, and all of those kinds of things. It directly affects their cognitive development. And so when we have all these school closures, we see these huge gaps in learning as well as the social emotional piece. So there's a lot going on there. You can go into the next slide. So we know the disrupted activities because they need those motor skills and sports. That's definitely been a problem for a lot of our kiddos, any of those extracurricular activities. And we know school is a critical place, not just for learning. We got to think about school is the key place for meeting kids non-academic needs. Um, and so when we're looking at the school closures, they're not getting the resources that, that they, they, they need, the social emotional sort of stimulation. And it's around the world. You know, over 90% of our children around the world have been affected by school closures. So we think about their needs, they're not getting that stimulation and the important developmental opportunities, but it's also placing a lot of burden on families as well. And, and a lot of families who are working from home and having to deal with their kids as well, it's, it's adding a lot of stress. You can go on to the next slide. One thing I wanted to mention is we all have schemas in how we see the world and our beliefs and schemas can be modified significantly by the different experiences we have like COVID and for kids, these schemas are often underdeveloped and they fill in the blanks. They have these magical sort of thinking. They're filling in the gaps um, with what the world, how they perceive the world and it's greatly influenced about everything that's going on around them. So the stress that they see in everyday news and in the conversations and all the lockdowns that they're having, um, increased fighting with family, and then the only lifelines that they have, school and sports and things like that, the only meaningful sort of opportunities and, and interactions, all of that's closed down, the world is closed down, that influences their schemas. And children are very sensitive to big changes in their lives. And so all of a sudden, if they have to start, you know, the, the, the restrictions and the, the lockdowns and all of those kinds of things and the inability to participate in the things that are really important to them, even just going on play dates, that can be really problematic. We can go into the next slide. And so our kids develop this anxiety-based schema. So we see this world as being scary and very vulnerable. And kids' self-efficacy is really limited, meaning they don't feel like they have a lot of control in their life. And that's 
that's what's contributing to the anxiety is this belief anxiety essentially what it is is I can't handle it, whatever it is. In this situation, the lockdowns and, and the overwhelm of the, the fear of everything that's going on. And so we look at social interactions. Those are also critical for self-efficacy. And so being socially isolated directly limits that piece of development. If you can go into the next slide. Screens have been, oh, sorry. I was jumping ahead. We'll get to screens in a second. Okay, yeah, we'll go forward and then we'll come back. So screens have definitely been a big problem. If you're a parent, you probably know the kids have been on screens probably way more than they want them to be. So there is that piece that they're on screens, not getting all of the other childhood experiences that they need to be doing. But they also have the world at their fingertips. And so this can be a problem too, because we've got this global culture of fear. And that's really affecting our kids. So we're instilling this sort of widespread anxiety because they're constantly being bombarded with the local news and the world news and everything that's going on. That just adds to the difficulties. So there's this crisis sort of saturated news globally at their fingertips, and that can negatively affect their mental well-being as well. So if you can go back to that, the skewed schemas, thank you. So now we see kids are developing these skewed schemas, which are reinforced by those lack of opportunities to engage in those rewarding and meaningful sort of experiences. So we have a whole host of negative outcomes. I'm not going to go into each of them. Again, I was originally going to bring in numbers and graphs and highlight the worsening of each outcome in COVID when I started, but I think we get it. I think we've all experienced this, and I don't want to get stuck here. Um, next slide to the silver lining perfect because it's easy to get pulled down and sucked into that because there is a silver lining here and we need to be really careful about how we talk because I think kids do hear so much and we get overwhelmed and even just for us adults hearing this all the time it's so easy to get overwhelmed you know when we when COVID first hit there was this big um article that went viral about how we are about to hit this mental health crisis Guess what? Until, it wasn't until that article came out that we had a mental health crisis. So it was literally sort of the next day. So we got to be careful on how we talk because this can be an opportunity. I always saw COVID sort of as a reset. I didn't expect it to take this long to, to kind of overcome, but next slide. Um, when we think about what we say and how we say it, how we model our responses to COVID and how we cope with everything going on affects our thoughts. It, can actually change the structure of our brains and our kiddos' brains. So that's kind of the big thing I want to talk about. COVID's big. I don't want to minimize it. I don't want to minimize the effects. Last slide. But this is a huge opportunity to build resilience. And this is where I wanted to get to at the end of the day. Researchers around the world have identified all of the neg negative mental health outcomes, and we're feeling it in our lives, certainly. But on the flip side, we all have the capacity for psychological immunity where we can use COVID to boost our resilience. It's not too late even now. There's so many things that we could be doing if we're intentional, even just about focusing on one little thing that we could do a day, follow the guidelines. I will do, yes, wearing a mask is annoying, but I will wear a full body guard suit if I need to, if that means my kids can still be in school doing their sports. Um, and so we don't want to get sucked into that overwhelm. I think today is going to be a, a heavy topic, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to cry. I'm already on the verge of it. Um, but I wanted to make sure we talked about that silver lining because we can use this resilience. The definition of resilience is having adversity, being able to overcome adversity. And so I think that there's an opportunity here that we can capitalize on as well. I will end there. Thank you.
I don't know if I can let you end quite there. The first um, resiliency measure that pops into your mind that one could be doing with their tiny humans. Oh, oh, yeah. So the yeah. thing that we, I mean, first when we're talking about COVID, being able to the fact based that last slide kind of had some ideas. So giving them fact based, you know, information. Um, because that's where the magical thinking comes in. I had a little girl who was terrified, you know, I have to stay home and mommy has to stay home, but daddy's going out in that dangerous world. Is he ever going to come back? And she was terrified because she just created this idea that it was like an apocalypse with zombies out there and daddy was never going to come home. So we need to give them that information, but in a very factual sort of way. Um, but, but being able to play with them and making sure just basic things, structure, routines, that they are getting their stimulation before screens like my girls have to make sure that they have an hour of play an hour of outdoor time an hour of exercise they often combine those things that's okay those are important developmental opportunities that children need but even just sitting with them and listening to them um, creating that space and especially because we're going to be talking about mental health that's huge I think as parents we often want to jump in and try to fix things you know they, they come home and, and I had a friendship fire and we're like, oh, why don't you do this or this? Or why do you even hang out with that person? You're always fighting. Parents, we want to jump in and try to fix or lecture or teach. Just creating that space. That is when we look at, at some of those protective factors. When I talk about psychological resilience, the number one thing is children being able to openly express their feelings without fear of parents jumping in or anything like that. So if I was going to say anything, it's just creating that space with whatever your kids come with and just commiserating with them, being like, oh, but that sucks. Not trying to fix it. Because trying to fix it is going to make them feel worse. And that would be my number one tip. I know that that is definitely something, even still with not so tiny humans as children, I struggle with. There is that intrinsic need, even outside of my parenting, just as a human who cares to want to make things okay. And so I heard you move into a place of validation when someone comes to you with a, a crisis of, of their current experience. So with the, that does suck. What is the next step? Is it that, is it silence and allowing them to, is it an open-ended question? What is? Yeah, anything, here's a great tip, especially when we're talking about anxiety. Anything you try to do to make your kids feel better, you're probably making it worse. <laughs> it's not intuitive, you know, it's very counterintuitive because we just want to, oh God, you know, it's going to be okay. But the validation is really important. And so when we're commiserating, oh, but, right, that is that validation piece. As soon as we try to say anything else that's our agenda, we have now completely invalidated everything that they said, even if we're showing that initial empathy. So the next step might just be silence. If you feel the need to say something is saying, I'm here, anything you need, let me know. Being a psychologist with my kids, I might, you know, throw in like, hey, I, I've got strategies. Remember yesterday you were really upset? I was doing some thinking and I've got some ideas. If you want, 
come and chat with me. So I'll give them that invite so that, you know, if you do want to help, you can invite them because then they'll listen. If you're trying to give them that advice, it's just going to be, oh, this is why I don't want to talk to you. Right. And, and I've got a teenager. So, you know, I, I get a lot of eye rolls. Mom, just right. So so it really is silence. And I'm here. Just let me know if you need anything from me. And on that note, I'm going to bring our other two panelists into the conversation. Um, and I would love to start with that same question. So someone, whether or not it be a tiny human, a middle tiny human, um, a human who is actively aging, comes to you just as a human and is in that state that I think we're all feeling either multiple times a day or every other day of just overwhelmed. What are some things that both of you would offer as good starting places for humans to help the other humans they love? So are you asking as far as, as a parent or as a friend or as a coworker? I feel like it's a universal question. I don't, I, I realize the language may change slightly if you are speaking to someone who is, you know, under the age of 12 or someone who's in between 12 and 19 or someone who's 65. But my observation anyway has been that there is no age or stage of life that is escaping the reality and the anxiety that is COVID-19. And so I think we got a lot of questions from folks at home around the, what can I say? What should I say? What can I offer? And so, I, yeah, I would love to hear both of your guys' perspectives on that as well, from whatever angle you want to take it from. I think, you know, your word overwhelm, I think is a really appropriate one, because I think the first thing that I say, no matter who I'm talking to, whether it's the kids, my patients, the kids, whether it's the moms and dads, whether it's people that I know personally, um, is that we're all overwhelmed. It's a very normal state of affairs right now. We are dealing with something that we've never lived through before. Um, it's changing in real time. Um, how we have to adjust to that is continually changing. And so um, what I do initially is just normalize it the experience is, is valuable, it's valid, and it, it, it is happening. And I think part of that sharing and part of that being able to sort of commiserate with each other that this isn't easy, that you can go through a day and have a good couple of hours and then all of a sudden you're, you know, something hits you or you hear something or there's a piece of news or you find out somebody you know is sick or any number of things um, can throw you a little bit off track. And so recognizing that we're living in very unusual times right now. It's very traumatic. Um, this wave in particular is about the most traumatic one that we've had so far. Um, it has a different quality and feel to it because it precipitously has been very, very bad, very, very quickly, which is in some ways the definition of trauma. And so we are dealing with things that we just aren't used to dealing with. And I think we need to make that sort of the foundation and the framework of everything else that we, we look at when we try to comfort each other, or when we're professionally trying to comfort people. I mean, obviously we have different tools that we will suggest versus if you're, you know, with your family at the dinner table and everybody's sort of saying how stressed they are, what, what is happening for them. 
and then you know the basics of of how we take care of ourselves sometimes we just have to go back to those basics how are we eating how are we sleeping are we getting a little bit of exercise is there a little bit of relaxation are we doing things for ourselves ourselves first as well as you know recommending that to others um, to sort of normalize and stabilize our routines so that we have something that's certain for us in in, in a lot of uncertainty and I think um, people respond really well to continuing to have routines, whether it's a morning routine or a nighttime routine, having those rituals with your kids where you read a story and maybe while you're reading the story, they can ask you questions or something comes up about their day and then they tell you this and this happened or something about COVID. And, and then you have that discussion at that time. So creating opportunities, but also structure provides the ability for us to be able to, you know, navigate through this. There's no perfect way to do this. There's no way to know exactly how to say everything right and, and that's okay right we're, we're all kind of learning as we go um but it's it's trying to pull the things that even amongst all of this um bring us a sense of normalcy bring us a sense of um community of connection and those are the things that protect us right those those are the things that help no matter what age we are feel like we're going to move through this and historically you know we move through pandemics, they don't last forever. And so there is going to be an end point to this. And I think that's also really important to emphasize as you're going through this, this isn't gonna be wave after wave after wave. Eventually it's not, it's not going to be. Now we just don't know when that is, but we know that it's coming because medicine and, and science is innovating to help us to get there, but it is coming. And I think that is a hugely comforting message for kids that there is going to be an end to this. And we all may take some time to have to adjust back to what it looks like after this, um, but it's going to come. It's eventually going to come. I want to preface this by saying I'm not a clinician, so I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a mental health expert. Um, most of my knowledge comes from my partner, who is a psychologist, um, and in my work with the team that I, that I uh, support at Cultivate. Um, but there's just so many things that that just makes so much sense with um, with what the panelists are saying here. You know, if I'm if I'm looking to support a friend um, that reaches out to me, the best that I can do most often is just listen, just listen and tell them I hear them and you know I support them and I just try my best to validate you know what they're what they're telling me. Um, I have found during the pandemic that the best thing I can do is to make sure that I'm, you know, helpful and supportive for my family, for my friends is to take care of myself so that I have the bandwidth to be supportive to other people. Um, and for me, a lot of that is just largely proactive. I need to know that I'm hitting those basics that Dr. Bizenko talked about, about am I sleeping well? Am I hydrating? Am I eating regularly? Um, but for me, you know, I need, I need alone time. I need exercise. Those are two major things that kind of support my mental health. And when I have those in place, um, I'm a much better parent. I'm a much better partner. Um, I'm able to uh, tolerate more stress or more upheaval when I have those things in place. Um, and the other thing I do is I, if I can, I try to look for, um, like a tangible way to help. So, you know, with my kids, sometimes that's playing with them. Um, sometimes that's going on a walk. 
um, or just laying in bed. Um, I have a five-year-old who struggles to fall asleep. And so for him, it's just laying with him at night um, so he can feel calm and safe. Um, with my partner, it's, you know, checking in regularly throughout the day and, and saying like, what do you need? Um, and let me help that. If you are busy and you need some food made, if you need to walk away for a little bit and get some fresh air, um, and being able to trade that off with them, those are the kind of the tangible things that I look to do, um, rather than trying to, to make it better or to say it's going to be fine or, or reassure because I can't. Um, I look for those little small things, those little acts of kindness and love that, that help someone feel supported. How, I guess, what are some signs or some ways that we can start to identify both in ourselves and in others that listening and validating is not currently enough for whatever that struggle is that someone is going through and how we differentiate that even between, and I know I do it myself a lot, the, it's just COVID. It's just, you know, it's a day, it's weighing on me, I'll get through it. Oh, it's been three days that are weighing on me, but I will get through it. Oh, yeah. So that self and external validation of when maybe you're not getting through as much as you want to convince yourself you are. Dr. Bazenko, you're muted. Thank you. Oh, my battery power is running out. I've got 5% left. I can't unmute. Oh, there we go. My, I've got like 5% left on my phone and I can't connect to the internet. So I'll say it quick. Um, you you kind of said, first of all, if you're wondering, you're probably already at a place where you could benefit. Everybody needs, when we're looking at psychological resilience, Another piece is the, the social support, feeling like you belong in that connection. Um, when I look at, you know, normal worries, for example, versus when are we starting to go into problematic worries? Normal worries, there's a, a beginning, a middle, and an end. With COVID, there hasn't really been an end. And so we've been having this drawn out. So if you aren't noticing a, a beginning, <laughs> middle, and an end, and it's continuing on and on and on, this could be turning into something. And we're worried about the long-term effects, even once COVID is done, what that's gonna look like. One of the biggest things that you're gonna see, I mean, I think we get so out of touch with our what's going on physiologically, but physiologically, our bodies are telling us already that, you know, our, our bodies will tell us way before our, our thinking brain will ever let us know that something's wrong. So trying to tap into, are, am I getting more headaches? Am I getting more tummy aches? Am I getting more whatever it is? And for adults too. But also looking at your irritability, right? Um, if you aren't able to respond coolly, calmly, patiently, I think our responses to others is a good trigger and I see it all the time just driving it's a nightmare I, I hate going out there because people are, are just at their wits end and the road rage and you know going out into public and people are really short and snappy I can see it in just reaction so I think it's taking a step back and reflecting what's going on physiologically and what's my patients look like because I think that that makes a huge difference 
Um, I'm going to disappear for a quick second just so I can look for a phone cord here. So I would uh, add to that, you know, it, it, it's, it's a big thing. What's, what we're going through is a big thing. And I don't know that distinguishing this is COVID versus, you know, this is other bad stuff. I, I don't, nothing takes, one thing doesn't take precedence over the other. This is a big thing. It's a bad thing. It comes in periods of time where it's worse. It hasn't quite ended. I think we've gotten periods of reprieve between the waves where we kind of felt a little bit normal. Um, but part of us has always got this thing kind of in the back of our head saying, well, maybe it's not over yet, or maybe it's going to get worse. And so we've not really been able to have full reassurance from the system that we depend upon in order to reassure us. And partly that's the disease process. And partly that's just kind of how this whole thing has gone, especially here in Alberta. But, you know, when a wave starts to ramp up, what I have noticed with my patients, even with myself, with my colleagues, sleep starts to slip. All of a sudden, you're not sleeping at night anymore. You know, all of a sudden you're preoccupied with things and, and, and you're overwhelmed and stuff that you would routinely be able to sort of plan out and execute, you're, you're getting stuck a little bit because, um, you know, it's not as easy for you to move through your day and, and feel like you're accomplishing things because there's a sort of sinister thing kind of in the background all, all, all the time. And so I think, you know, once you start to notice things like your sleep and your energy starting to slip a little bit, you really start to notice that you're really focusing and preoccupied with this subject. You have to start to have thoughts more maybe of death or worried about loved ones dying and being anxious about that. Um, and you get this low sort of sustained mood where you're not, you're not rallying. You're not really feeling like you're, you're getting moments of joy, that you have hope, that you have, you know, things to look forward to, that there's purpose to your life, to your day. Once you started to slide into those kinds of like symptoms and signs, then we're getting into a bit of a dodgier kind of area. And really, you know, for kids, their functioning is, can they do their school? For adults, our functioning is, can we do whatever it is that we do for the main part of our day, whether we stay at home or whether we work outside the home, that's our thing. And if we find that we're not able to focus, to concentrate, we're not able to, to really participate, um, we're not engaged the way that we usually are, we're, we're almost like listless, you know, that that's a sign that things are sliding into a place where maybe we're starting to get, you know, into a little bit more trouble. And depending on what your job is, if you're a healthcare worker and all that's happening to you and you're starting to get nightmares and you're starting to get, um, you know, memories and flashbacks and things are happening, you know, in your day. Now you're like, I don't want to go to work anymore. And I, maybe I should quit this job. When that stuff starts to happen, then it's, 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 it's a, um, a serious thing. Not that the other things aren't serious too, but for in that scenario, it's a serious thing because it's starting to show, you know, a stress reaction, acute stress reaction that could potentially go into more of a, a, a bigger picture stress reaction. And so given the milieu of us, as I said before, not being certain about what's happening around us, not having clear guidelines of when this thing is going to end, it's continuous stress and it's chronic stress. And we're, we rally for a bit, but then we get back into a situation like this. And the brain just doesn't like that. It just doesn't like to not know what's going on. And it really doesn't like to be under chronic amounts of stress, like prolonged periods of time in which, you know, it can't get a footing as to what's going on. And so when you start to see that all slip, that's when you really want to reach out for help, whether that's through your family physician, through, you know, your therapist, your psychologist, social worker, registered nurse, whoever's 
potentially providing you care if you don't have care, um, you know, reaching out to your, your family physician, primary care physician, um, and talking to someone and saying, hey, look, this stuff's happening to me. Is Should I be worried? Should I not be worried? What, what should I be doing about this? Because mental health is a slippery slope of I'm doing okay, and then all of a sudden it's kind of not okay, and then boom, you're slid down. And, and, and it happens so fast. And given like, I, and I use the word trauma here a lot because I really want to emphasize that this is a big traumatic thing we're going through and it's not normal. And it's, it, it happened in a way that it, you know, and it continues to happen in a way like we're, we seem to like be surprised every time, every time something just sort of starts to snowball. And so these reactions, your brain's reacting this way, doesn't mean there's something wrong with you or that you can't cope better than the next guy or if other, if other people are doing pandemics better than you. It, it means that you're normal and you're processing. And sometimes as humans, it's just too much and we just get too overwhelmed. And depending on how we're wired, you know, we'll indicate which way we might go. We might become more anxious, we might become depressed. You know, we might start to, you know, drink. We might do all kinds of things to try to cope with the stress that's going on. And so when you start to notice, maybe these things are happening too much, that's when you reach out, right? Because it can get to a point where it, it gets so bad and, and we're already isolated. We're already staying at home. We're already doing things that you would do if you were, if you had um, some significant mental health worries, we're, we're, we're doing that on purpose. It's sometimes harder to tell, right? So when someone comes to me and says, hey, I'm not doing good, I can look at them and I can see, okay, maybe they're not showering or maybe they're not dressing the way that they usually do to come to the office. And I start to notice that, that, that there's a decline in how they look, but we're not interacting like that right now. We're all kind of in our sweatpants and hanging out at home and we're not, you know, doing the things that other people can even notice aren't, are different about us. And so I think once you start to feel like it's kind of getting on top of you and you, you, you're not quite able to rally the way that you're used to, or you're overly preoccupied, that's when you reach out and at least ask somebody, you know, who has some professional capacity, whether or not they think there might be something more going on. Jesse, did you have any thoughts that you wanted to share on that question? Uh, I mean, my perspective, um, personally, like the signs that that I experience when I'm headed down a hill into kind of negative mental health territory, I become very internal. Um, I withdraw emotionally from the people around me. I don't even want to share like the trivial little things that I find joyful in the day because my my joy is reduced in the day. Um, I'm, I'm a person who's very practiced at kind of numbing through, you know, doom scrolling on social media, um, watching, sh <laughs> watching shows that I've seen a hundred times because I'm not really paying attention. Um, you know, my sleep disintegrates. Um, and I, I'm a person who experiences very physical signs of anxiety. So, um, I, I'm prone to like numb, numbness in my, my fingers and tingling in my arms and heart palpitations and things like that. Um, so usually when I, when I get to a place of experiencing heart palpitations, that is um, a really, really obvious sign that something is not going well for me. Um, and I've, I've been working very hard over the pandemic to um, kind of get ahead of those things and get good self-care in place and good proactive care in place. Um, you know, trying to start my day with a couple little things that are just for me. Um, so that I can get ahead of whatever the day is going to bring. And um, as Dr. LaFrance has said, you know, we're kind of in the middle of we don't know if, if the next day is going to be better or worse or more of the same. And 
some days it feels like Groundhog Day and some days it feels like this looming disaster in front of us. And so for me, you know, doing those proactive things, like I started going back to see a counselor a few months ago, um, not necessarily because of COVID, but COVID made it harder to um, process and harder to, um, you know, deal with the other circumstantial things our family has experienced a lot of loss through the pandemic, not from the pandemic, but during. Um, and so that's, it becomes a lot harder to process when you, when you, we don't have the familiar ways, you know, you can't necessarily attend a funeral, you can't fly to visit your friends. Um, you know, you can't go out um, in the ways that we used to and, and do the little things that help you kind of move forward with life when you're experiencing loss. So um, you know, working, working hard to kind of get ahead of those things and then accessing a counselor myself so that um, I have someone who I can process with and who can help me with skill building. Um, and so that I'm also just not trying to put all of that on my partner. I think that's maybe a little bit too much to ask of anyone's partner to be their sole support and processor and all of their social life and, and so many of these things that we're asking of our partners right now. So I resemble many of those statements. So thank you very much for um, sharing. Um, yeah, what some of those signs are for you and that unique dynamic of physical isolation and tightening of that bubble really creating a different type of dependence and reliance sometimes on the folks that you share space with. Um, Dr. LaFrance, I wanted to go back to um, a statement that you made moments ago around um, the trauma facing a lot of our healthcare workers. Um, we've heard from a lot of folks in healthcare, and obviously, since Protect Our Province's coalition is primarily made up of medical professionals, I... I've, I I can't even articulate, imagine how some folks are still putting one foot in front of each other. And I've noticed that sometimes those feet are so much heavier over the last six weeks than they were the six weeks before. Um, and I'm worried for my friends. <laughs> I wanted to um, touch on uh, something that Jesse had said um, and how COVID has robbed us a lot of our rituals, our rituals with our funerals, our rituals with weddings, our rituals with birthdays, our rituals where we connect together and show each other that we're community. And I think this disease, its legacy, when we look back on it, is that it's, it's, it's robbed us of community because it's been so divisive. And so um, what I'm seeing right now, because it separated itself out between vaccinated and unvaccinated right now, primarily in the intensive cares, um, is that there's divisiveness in the ICU where typically when you're in an intensive care unit, you know, it's, it's a serious thing. It's a critical thing. It's never obviously you know, a happy time in someone's lifespan and when they're physically going to be there. 
and when the family is going to be there. But for the most part, everybody's in agreement. Everybody knows why, you know, the family member is there. What we're seeing right now is a lot of division, a lot of, you know, being angry at healthcare workers, um, intensive care workers. Um, there's, there's a lot of um, division and anger right within the milieu itself. And when you go into critical care or critical care nursing, like you go into any other area of nursing or medicine or healthcare, there's a certain amount of connection that you have within your job within the um, intensive care. And some of that has been broken for them. It is lots of people coming in. They don't know them as well. They've got family members that aren't necessarily happy with them. Um, they're providing care in a different way because you know at the height of when, when people are, are, are passing on, um, they may not know them as well as they usually do. So they're not providing the kind of care that they would regularly provide in an intensive care unit when they had enough staff and enough resources. And, you know, patients weren't all over the place and all the beds were everywhere and in, in unusual places and, and multiple patients in a room instead of a one-on-one -on -one situation and nurses and, and, and other healthcare providers are assigned to more than usual. All of that has changed the way that they are practicing and some of the purpose that they get from their work. And because it's been a situation of grievous, grievous danger and um, overflow and overcapacity, they're providing care at a different standard than what they usually are used to. And that's not their fault. It's just the way it is right now. And with all of that, it's changed for them, I think, the feel of it is my sense and the satisfaction of it and the feeling of competency and being able to do it in the way that you know how to do it and with all of that it's put tremendous strain on them and it's traumatic strain and it's strain in a way that i don't know that we could have ever imagined lots of our frontline workers would ever be experiencing their jobs or their profession or their calling, depending on how they, they frame it. And it's caused a lot of grief. It's caused a lot of sadness. It's caused a lot of trauma. It's caused a lot of pain. It's caused people who knew that every day when they woke up that this was what they were supposed to do with their life to question if this is what they're supposed to do with their life. And it's a lot of death. Now, intensive care always has death, but this is a lot of death. And it's death that isn't easy for us because it's preventable death at this point in this pandemic. And so even that doesn't sit okay, let, let alone having family members telling you they don't have COVID and you're killing them and you're the reason they're in trouble here. And you know, all of the denying and all of the things that have happened that have divided us community-wise and how we see this, we're all having different experiences watching the same thing. And as a healthcare provider who usually has a uniform experience, typically where they do good, it, it, you know, they provide good care, whatever happens for the patient, there's meaning that they give them. It, it, it feels very different. This whole circumstance feels very different. And so, you know, part of trying to make it okay is that it's just really not okay. 
it is really like being in a wartime situation, the way that some care may have to be rationed, that there's not enough people to take care necessarily, all of these things, right? And so I think, again, normalizing the abnormal, this is grossly abnormal with what they're going through, that they're not alone, that they're feel that the, how they feel others are feeling, whether they communicate that and having peer support is extremely important, that they need to reach out if those signs and symptoms that I described before, the sleep, the worry, the, the stress, the nightmares, the all the things start to start to kind of show for them. And really trying to anchor into the the purpose of, you know, kind of why they they went into this in the first place, even if this isn't normal circumstances, and that this will end. And the way that they used to practice will come back, even if they need to take a break from it in the middle of this. That doesn't mean they're not going to be able to go back to the profession. It doesn't mean that they're not going to be able to, to, to go back to that unit. It just means right now, it just isn't something that maybe they can do in, in this moment. But that doesn't mean that it's permanent. Nothing is permanent. Like life is 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 such that no matter what we're going through, we're passing through it and nothing is permanent. So I'm a bit of an existentialist and I really believe that. And I, I believe that there's meaning even in suffering and it's gross, intense, over the top suffering that they're going through right now and they're human beings. And so I think we outside of those units and emergency and the first responders and all the guys that are providing that frontline care need to recognize that this is grievous because part of what's happening for them too is they're feeling like they're not witnessed. They you know we can't see in there, the it's confidential. We don't know how bad it is, how terrible it is visually to them. And it's like it's happening in some other place and we're going to Ikea and we're living our lives, right? It, it's, it's not their reality. And I think we need to acknowledge that their reality has been terrible this last little while. And, and that's not their fault, obviously it's the circumstances and so if they're having trouble coping with that that's also not their fault and so you know that's that's kind of what i would say is is um the things that we need to focus on is understanding exactly how bad this is and encouraging to get help when you need it you know for, for our healthcare workers and, and and having that health care available making sure that we have it available systemically making that a point as well Um, I, there's so many good points to jump out of there. Um, the ritual piece, that's the fifth psychological resilience factor is having tradition. So to bring it down practically, what's a little tradition that you could start now, you know, within your family? Um, but you reminded me of the Christmas truce. And, and I don't at all want to bring religion in here. It's not meant to be at all. Um, but if you haven't heard of the Christmas truce, it was during the war when oh, I'm going to cry. Ah, oh, uh, the Germans and, and the Brits were fighting and it was Christmas Eve and the Germans put down their weapons and they realized it's Christmas Eve and they started singing Silent Night in German. And the British heard them singing and they realized we're the same. We're fighting. We're the same. Oh. And they put down their weapons and they started singing Silent Night and they stopped fighting for the night and came together and played football, soccer. And it's that belonging piece, which is another huge piece of, of the psychological sort of resilience, is 
belonging. And so how can we be there together? Because it's that division that you were talking about that, that's so detrimental. Um, and so I mean, last time when I had talked, I'm like, we just got to come together as a community. And that's really what it is. It's, it's, you know, whether it's children or adults, we all have a fundamental need to feel like we belong. And I think that that's been a huge piece. We've been disconnected and, and we've lost a lot of those rituals and sort of traditions and things like that. So I think what's also happened is the division has happened over treatments. And, you know, so, so we're, we're divided about vaccine, not vaccine. Is this virus real? Is it really dangerous? Is my immunity gonna? The virus is still the enemy. And until we can coalesce around that idea that we as a community are fighting this enemy and this enemy is the virus, it's not who got vaccinated, it's not, you know, the divisions that were currently created until we can look at it and say this thing needs to stop we're going to do for each other what it takes to protect each other to move through this until we feel that sort of social responsibility and social you know sort of connection we're, we're going to be divided over the wrong things and that's just been amplified given our current political states and all of the things that have, all the forces that make anything happen at any one given time. And that's what's been the most damaging to us. And you know, my little guys go to school. My little one is was six, he's seven now. There's not a day that child complained about putting on a mask because in his mind, he was protecting all of his little friends at school and it never occurred to him that he shouldn't do that. It was never even a thought. And here we are all grown-ups and we should have all been, you know, we should all learn that in grade one and two, that we need to take care of each other. We need to take care of our vulnerable. You know, a 14-year-old was reported to have died from this virus because they have comorbidities. Their life is precious and valuable. And it was my job and our job to make sure we were the ones vaccinated so that they didn't get this. And we're not doing right by now our children if we don't see that you know what i mean and so the division around vaccines which we have many of and are fairly commonplace in our society to this level you know has has, has become such a a, a a divider amongst us that we're missing sight of the biggest picture is that we are all the same and we all want to survive this and we all want our children to survive it and our loved ones to survive it. And nobody is disposable within our society. Not if they're old, not if they're young. We all are precious, our lives are precious. And if you believe that, then you do what it takes. You do what it takes. And, and to me, that's the message that, that because there's been so much divisiveness and political spin and minimizing and all the things we've missed the fact that we're almost through this. We really are almost through this. I believe that just knowing the nature of viruses. Um, that's another thing I have as a, as a microbiology degree. Um, and we're almost through this. But when we look back at how we conducted ourselves through this, we want to feel that we did everything we could to bring as many of us through this so that when we all gather together, we're all there. And, 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 and that's not the feeling right now. That just, it just isn't the feeling right now. And I wish we would spend more time, you know, bringing that to everybody versus all of the 
division that's now impacting our healthcare workers being able to, to, to provide care. It's, it's impacting all of us and how we feel safe because if we don't feel like we can trust, you, you alluded to the war, right? So if we can't trust the man on our left and the man on our right to have our back, who can we trust? And, and that's part of what we've seen with this whole thing is that our, our ability to trust and feel safe is partially based on our communities and how, how we interact with each other. And, and we don't feel that safety right now, right? Because we don't know that everybody else has our back. I started this um, briefing today by talking about the fact that this was the beginning of a conversation that there would never be a way that in 45 minutes to an hour, we could make it through all of the questions, all of the thoughts, all of the feelings. Um, but as we say goodbye today, I think every we really need to remember that we do all really matter. And like Dr. LaFrance just said, we need to make it through the end of this together. And so if you're struggling, if you are experiencing any of the physiological or emotional, psychological symptoms that we've talked about today, reach out for help. We have lost so much as a society over the last 21 months. We have lost and sacrificed so much as individuals. We, we don't, we shouldn't have to lose any more. There's going to be some slides at the end with some resources um, for access for mental health supports, um, for folks at home, for kids and teens, for healthcare workers. There's going to be a bunch more circulating on our Twitter and Facebook and Instagram over the next couple of days. It is okay to not be okay. But please, if you're struggling or if someone you know is struggling, help them find help. We'll be back on Thursday with a panel of experts exploring politics, governance, and public safety. And we will endeavor to schedule part two of this ongoing conversation in the very near future. Stay safe, Alberta. And as always, remember, COVID-19 is airborne. Wear the best mask you have access to. And vaccines really do save lives. And yours is worth it. So please take care of yourself and those you love. <laughs>